City Lights is a community of faith in Jesus, seeking to equip people to exalt Him and extend His kingdom. This message is from our study through the Gospel of John called Believe, Jesus Changes Everything. If you are encouraged and challenged by this message, please share it with someone, post it on social media, or let us know by leaving feedback on our iTunes podcast. God, we just want to hear from you. Nothing more, nothing less. Here I am. For this morning, would you do that through me? Thank you that you are. Amen. So there's a story out of the Great Revolutionary War that George Washington was riding up, and he saw the leader of a branch of the army, the military, and he saw a guy who is above them, the leader, and he saw a bunch of the people in military working on a project. And he rode up and got off of his, mo- his motorcycle. George Washington got off his motorcycle. <laughs> this is a modern version, guys. Come on. He got off his horse power, and he got down, and he lended a hand to help fix what they were working on. And as he was doing that, he looked at the leader and said, hey, why aren't you helping do this? And the leader said, I, I'm the leader of these people. i I'm not going to be the one helping. And so George Washington continued to do that and help. And when it was finished, he got back on his horse and he said, hey, next time you need help, just let me know because I'm the commander in chief and I'd be happy to help you with that. The story, though humorous, we believe is historical. And the point of it is that there's no service that's beneath anybody. You can be the commander in chief and if you have an ability to help somebody or do something, it's not below you. And so that person was using their authority and using their power and using their influence and actually found themselves in a separate place than common people. But in the kingdom of God, because of Jesus Christ, we are all common people. We all have something in common. We've all decided to go our own way, which has led us to this reality called being sinful. And we have all found ourselves at a place that is level at the cross. And Jesus has found it fit to become the perfect sacrifice to make all those who have that in common have a new commonality, which is being sons and daughters of the living God, just like he is. That's a simple way that the Christian church would describe a statement like the gospel. It was a very short, succinct way to describe the gospel. But that commonality that Christ talks about in the gospel, or the commonality that George Washington demonstrated in this passage, Christ is about to demonstrate. But what I want to draw your attention to is what I believe as a you know, if, if you've read the scriptures and made a statement about the scriptures, technically, by definition, you actually are a scholar. And so when I say from my scholarship, what I'm talking about is the 25-plus years of education and practice, what I understand this passage to mean, one of the clear indicators for me is that, or clear things in this passage, is that Jesus had done every single thing that God his Father had willed him to do, except die on the cross, defeat death, raise from the dead, walk for 40 more days, ascend to heaven, and give the Holy Spirit. He had done everything, and you're going to see that in this passage. So what we actually see here is you see the statement that he had done everything that needed to be done, but then what he actually practices here, you see that he's not below or above, or he's not above anyone. He actually finds himself as a place as a servant. But what I want to draw your attention to, I don't want you to miss, he didn't have to do this as like, oh, Father was like, okay, one last thing. Jesus, would you just use one last thing? Would you model what humility and servicehood looks like in servanthood? Would you serve people? I want you to see this is just the typical personality of Jesus the Christ, our Savior, and it's absolutely stunning. And I'm just curious where you would be if you were in that George Washington scene. If you were the leader, would you be up on your horse or would you be down helping? And if you were the George Washington, would you come over and affirm or would you be down with those people? Where would you find yourself? And that's just a simple turf question. 
what determines the height or the depth of how you serve. And I mean that, you know, at City Lights. I mean that at the workplace. Some of you are bosses. You own your own companies or you're part of a company and you're under authority, but everybody that's under your authority in some way, shape, or form, are you using that opportunity of authority and influence to serve people or to get them to serve you in your purposes? And you might be able to justify, listen, I'm the, quote, lead pastor of this church, so that doesn't mean I'm over, I, I, I try to spiritually oversee you. That's a true blessing and a call and a privilege. And then our, our full-time staff and part-time staff and volunteers, I try to leverage my authority and, and influence, but I consistently believe I'm supposed to be just the lead servant, not the lead person who you bring me honor and glory and submission. I want to come in alongside of you and submit with you unto Christ so that he truly would be seen as he is. And I'm just curious, in your various places, and maybe you grew up with a mentality of gender roles that you think of yourself as a man and therefore you exercise authority over every woman in every single possible way. And whatever line you draw or cross, I'm just curious, at a turf cultural 2017 level of the last 10, 15 years and the next 10, 15 years, what actually determines the height and the depth, the length, the width of the service that you give to one another? And the precedent isn't me or my interpretation or my idea. It's really this person, Jesus. Because we believe Jesus not only was the son of God, we also believe he's the most normal human in history. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, we truly believe he actually just lived the most normal life. We never call Jesus a radical in here. We definitely never call him a rebel. And we don't exercise our faith as, oh, I'm a rebel. Because that would mean that your picture of authority rests somewhere here on earth rather than the kingdom of God as the ultimate authority. So I... You know, when I was younger, I might have thought, hey, praying at school, when I became a Christian, I would gather with people, and that, we would actually huddle in a public area and pray for the school in the morning, and, and people would, like, laugh at us and throw things at us and, and hit us and kick us and all this stuff. It wasn't as bad as it sounds, but those things would happen, and, and I, I remember thinking, like, man, we're so rebellious, and then as I started to read the Bible, I was like, wait a minute, it's only rebellious compared to somebody who says that's not normal or healthy, I think this is normal and healthy. And so not only is doing this normal, but also persecution seems to be part of the normal thing that Jesus talked about too. So it's just how you view the world. The kingdom of God really isn't upside down. It's right side up, and we're helping people come alive to him in that way. So what determines your service? Because when I look at Jesus, he actually breaks gender uh, ideas before anybody in the last hundred years did. Because he actually in, moved into conversational relationships and social settings and would drink out of things that a woman drank out of. And it might sound archaic, but the scriptures are Jesus genuinely was predominantly the first reformer for gender roles and who, who just gender in general. Women didn't have the same rights. They didn't have the same opportunities. And Jesus interacted with so many women and, and literally flipped the world right side up in that way, restored relationships, restored dignity to people, so much so that even people who were caught in heinous sins that were male and female, he came and brought himself to those people in their brokenness and said, hey, why don't you and I talk rather than you fearing all your accusers? Let's have a conversation. He restored these people. So what I, I want to just make very clear is that Jesus in his heart in these passages, he is a God who took the form of man and we named him, named him Jesus, but he's the Christ, he's the sent one of God. And he literally leveled the ground at every level and every topic and every political and social thing. And I'm not, I'm not some, if you've never been here before, I'm not some like political preacher. I'm not throwing a rock at those who do, but there's only one kingdom and it's not called the United States of America. It's the kingdom of Yahweh, Jesus Christ, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and it remains forever. And so as I teach from this passage, you have to keep that in mind. When we talk about normal, we're talking about that. We're talking about him.
So when I say what determines the height and depth of your service, ultimately I hope it is, well, when I behold Christ, I see what it looks like to serve others. And I don't just copy him. As Dallas Willard said, what would Jesus do if he was in your shoes, if he was in your skin? That's what it looks like to serve. So a little statement, a little bit of diagnostic for you and me before we jump into the passage. If an opportunity to serve somebody or an opportunity to give to somebody or an opportunity to be served by somebody is beneath you, potentially you've put Christ below you. You've put yourself above Christ. And let that just simmer for a moment. But if an opportunity to serve somebody is beneath you, then you've put yourself above Christ. And the other side, the other half of this passage that I'm way more interested in than that first portion, if you being served is, no, 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 I, I, I can't be served, I can't be the center of attention, you potentially might also be putting yourself above Christ. Like, wait a minute, what? I said earlier, and I've said it earlier this week to other people as well, one of the hardest, most challenging things I've seen in people who are following Christ is actually just to receive his love. We love doing and proving. But when I see Jesus Christ and understand him as the lover of my soul and your soul, he loves to calm you with his presence. And in fact, we have that passage up there, I think, from Zephaniah, another minor prophet. We've talked about Habakkuk and Malachi and uh, Zephaniah. Says I, he, he, the Zephaniah says that God comes around you, and though you might not see it, he comes around you, and he calms you with his presence. He sings over you. He even dances over you. You're a recipient. And really, we never graduate from being recipients. That doesn't mean we're hoarders, like, I'm just here to get something from God. That's, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a lover who's in relationship with he or her lover. And there's beautiful reception, giving, receiving in that place. Hopefully the passage will help you see this clearly. John chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to be with his father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. When I made those opening comments about Jesus fulfilling all the things that God had given him to do, his father had given him as the will to do, it wasn't only the cross, although the cross is a singular event and is significant in the life of the church. It was a singular event that Jesus Christ took the, the gap, the, the brokenness, the rebellion that was yours and eyes, and he, he canceled it and then deposited into you not only his spirit and his presence, but the righteousness of him. So your relationship through Christ's work that was about to be finished at the cross and resurrection, and then ascension and giving the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes into you as an individual, you are united into the body of Christ both now and forever. You become, quote, saved into that by the grace of God. It was his choosing as a gift, and you are sustained into that relationship by that same gift of the Holy Spirit. It's just what God did. He's so smart. He's so thoughtful. It's good to be a receiver of a person, a being that thinks of us like that, who considers and anticipates all of your needs, all of your deficits, all of your bills, and takes care of all of it before you ever know you have it. He's an anticipator, and he's thorough in that way. Well, in this passage, before they share this Passover meal, which is a Jewish part of the history here, and they were coming to celebrate and have sacrifice and remember the things that God had done in ancient past, Jesus is about to actually become the offering, the final and forever offering to, to make humanity and God one again. But this, the last line there in this first verse, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It's kind of strange to see that Jesus loved something to the end, even though he's still continuing to live and 
he'll live that night and go into a botched trial and be crucified the next morning, and three days later he rises from the dead. It's interesting to see their end, but that's what I'm talking about scholarly-wise. When you look at the scriptures, what are they trying to tell us? They're trying to say what you're about to see from Jesus between that moment and the cross it's not like a freebie, but in a sense, it's, there wasn't a, quote, assignment from God the Father, like, do this at the meal and do this at the meal, do this in the meal. So what we see Jesus do is just the most normal human thing to do, not to prove something, not to be an example of something. It was just normal. If you would have said, Jesus, why are you doing this? He's like, why am I doing what? This is just a normal thing to do. So that's the context that we have this, this point he's making. So verse 2, during the supper... When the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So if you don't know, Jesus had 12 followers specifically that he went and said, hey, do you want to come follow me? Do you want to come follow me? And so he selected 12 different guys. And they all said, where are we going? He said, I'm going to show you the kingdom of heaven. I'll show you what the kingdom of God's like. I'll show you what eternal life looks like in real time. And so all of them, these 12, dropped everything they did and followed him. Judas is one that's known in history as somebody who didn't like the way that Jesus Christ was representing and unfolding and uncovering the kingdom of God on earth. And so eventually, in this moment, he's going to betray him in this night. And so you have that. Now, there was a lot of other people, men and women, that were included in Jesus's his quote church he wasn't trying to develop a church right there or a new religion in that place but there are a lot of people that were believing publicly and privately in him even though tens of thousands had confessed at some point and in a few days of so many of them are about to depart from being associated with him at all including some of the 12 not only judas but others someone like a peter who was a really close friend of his so jesus knowing that the father had given him all things into his hands All things have been given into Jesus' hands. That's a lot of authority. And that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from the supper. Okay, all authority has been given to Jesus Christ at the meal. Not only at the meal, but throughout his whole life. And Jesus chose to demonstrate strength through submitting himself to governing authorities and people who wanted him. He didn't, he didn't parade himself in a way to convince people. Like I'm, I, God forbid I ever try to sell you Jesus or prop him up so you're attracted to him. I never need to do that. I don't need to persuade you, guilt you, or surprise you into following him. He's so much better than any of those things could ever do, and he's so much more just delicious in the, in the most pure ways that if I ever try to say he's like this, it's a lesser version of him. And so in this case, it says that Jesus has all authority. Everything's in his hands in this moment. And he had come from God in the, in the relationship with him, in the indivisible relationship with him. And he's going back. And so remember, the end of things are done. He, he's this person who has authority, and he has used his authority in a form of meekness. Meekness does not mean that somebody's weak. It means all their strength and all their power is perfectly submitted to authority. And so even when he's on the cross and people are mocking him and saying, if you're really God, then come down from the cross. I would have thought that would be a great turn of events in the movie of Christ. It would have been awesome. Like all of a sudden he's like rips his hand off of the nail and like the nail goes through the guy's head that says, like, wow, this is like 2017 film. This is amazing. But Jesus is like, I'm going to demonstrate the greatest power by dying here. And then three days, I'm going to do something you've never seen. He's not trying to show off, but I'm going to defeat death and rise from the dead physically. And you'll see me and touch me and hear me and know me. That is how I'll show you that I walk with God. And that is the power of the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus eventually says, it's better for me to go up to heaven and be back with my father and his influence in his world so that that kind of power will be on board in you every second of your life. 
And so when the church decides to, quote, prove or guilt or surprise or prop up Jesus, they're literally doing something different than Jesus modeled on the cross. The church can demonstrate meekness and submission and persecution and even death. And, and the church doesn't, shouldn't go like, hey, why did, that person, why did that person suffer? Is this part of the kingdom? That's part of the kingdom on this earth. It doesn't come the way we would think, but it's, an up, it's a right side up kingdom. So Jesus in this moment, but the way I understand this passage is Jesus rising from the supper and he's about to wash the guy's feet was not part of the specific will of God that God the Father said, hey, do this, do this, do this, do this. This is what I want you to do. You see why? And Jesus is like, yes, this scene just is who he is. This is just Jesus, man. This is our Jesus. And he's attractive as all get out. So he rose from supper and he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. He's not naked here, by the way, but it's just robes and garments. If you take off some of those robes, there's kind of like long underwear undergarments is basically to have on and wraps a towel around his waist. And he pours water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. So uh, in, in this time in history, uh, different animals would pull different things to the street and people would walk through the street. So eventually there'd be ruts in the street you know, indentations, and when it would rain or animals would urinate or defecate, all that stuff would just catch. Or if you would spit or blow some snot or whatever gross things, it would all be caught in the streets. And so as you walk, you weren't walking with boots, that would have been real nice, that you would walk with just a flat surface beneath you and then a few straps around you called sandals. Yep, you'd walk in sandals. And so at times you would potentially step in a two to three inch hole or, or, or just this, this, this gutter. And your foot would go, you know, like, ooh, that's gross. And I don't think they said, ooh, that's gross, because really every step was going to get that. And when you would go to have a meal, you know, we're like, hey, make sure you wash your hands before you eat. This was, hey, could you get the stank off your feet before we lay down on the floor and eat? Because when they ate, in this case, it was a, a low table in this area, and they would sit basically like this and eat. And if I was to model this and had enough time, the next person would be sitting right here and eating, right next to my dungy feet. And it's disgusting. And so you would sit together and share a meal, which they were doing. But when they got to this place, no one's feet were washed. So you're literally sitting next to whatever had been dropped in the streets, and it's caked on your feet. Because you know once it's there, it's not just muddy and mucky. It's just fermented. And it's been marinating. And now you're about to eat food and smell that. It's not, gro- it's not nice. You know, It's not clean. You don't want to eat at that restaurant. Well, the reality is in this case... No one got their feet washed. Why? Well, because it was only them 12. This is a borrowed room. It's a borrowed restaurant. And there wasn't a host. There wasn't a waiter. There wasn't somebody who owned the restaurant. They literally borrowed a bonus room in a house, basically. And they said, hey, do you mind if we eat a meal up there on the floor? Yeah, sure, you can use my bonus room. Just go in the back through. Here's the garage code. Just go on up there. I mean, I don't want you to over-spiritualize. I mean, this is basically what's going on. So when they go to eat this meal, it's nasty. And so Jesus derobes and starts washing feet. Why? Well, ultimately, if it was a restaurant, there would be a very low paid, it's the lowest person at the restaurant, would be at the door with a huge basin, and when you'd come in, they'd be like, hey, you can't bring any of that in here. I'll take care of it. And they wouldn't have said that, but it would have been culturally known, before you come into a place that's supposed to be clean, I will wash. So the slave, the, the lowest person in the house making the lowest amount of money, would literally undo the sandals, scrub your feet, and then dry them off, and then you'd go on in and eat. No one did that. Why? Because Jesus had him and 12. They didn't have servants going with them too. What does that tell you, by the way? Just, just a little side note about Christianity in 2017. I, in my profession, there are a lot of 
past, I guess you call them pastors, people who are leading organizations who have all kinds of servants around them, and there is a huge distance between them and them around them. And I'm not saying it's wrong to have an assistant or somebody who serves a role at all, but I would like Christ just to be our standard, and he is a standard in this house. So that's the scene. But Jesus, anticipating and seeing this, decides, I'll do it. We don't know that there was a conversation, but in Luke's account, Verse, uh, chapter 22, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, John are all um, stories of people who actually walked and talked and hung out with Jesus and they wrote document, they documented all the things, well, some of the things that Jesus said and did. And Luke, in this scene, Luke records that when this was going on, before Jesus started washing feet, they began to question one another. So the 12, so Jesus, I don't know where he's at. I don't know if he's still walking up the bonus room stairs or something, or he was looking at the horse of George Washington in the garage. I don't know what was going on. But when they began, when they saw this, they began to question which one of them was going to do this. Before Jesus does anything, they're like, hey man, do you know how many times Jesus has took me and James off to do a bunch of stuff? Remember that thing that happened on the mountain we're not allowed to tell you about? Yeah, I'm just letting you know if Jesus has favorites, I'm, I'm definitely in that ranking. You know that, right? You do know that? Okay, good. You know, and, and literally, they start doing a pecking order of trying to figure out if Jesus has favorites or who has the most dignity. And so, you know, that someone like a Peter could be real outspoken, like, hey, you guys know I'm the man. I'm the most verbal. I, you know, in a few moments, I'm going to pull out a sword and cut a guy's ear off. He didn't know that yet, but he's like, I'm, I'm, he was just loud. He's like, woohoo! And so the extroverted, extroverted people were probably winning in that conversation. So they, just so you guys know, I'm going to break the silence. I'm the most popular. I'm the most powerful. And they were literally arguing who is greater. Literally arguing who's greater. So an act of service was a signal for them to describe and defend their own superiority. They were telling everybody every reason why they should not serve. <laughs> I'm curious, when you see an opportunity to serve, what goes on in your mind? I'm not, I'm not going to meddle a whole lot, maybe a teeny bit. And by the way, like I'm speaking to me, just in case you, you haven't been here before, like, I'm not talking up here as a stage. The only reason I'm elevated right now is so that you can see me. It's not like I'm an elevated human being. We're all level at the cross. We're all level at redemption. We're all level in the family of God in that way. But when you see an opportunity to serve, do you ever look around the room and go, I know that's beneath me, but I gotta make sure there actually are people beneath me here so I can look at them and appoint them to do it. Hey, you should probably take care of that, you know? You don't expect me to do it, Right? but I'm gonna be a good leader. I'm gonna make sure. Hey, Jesus, got, got it taken care of. The whole feet washing thing, I don't know if you know, but there was no servant here, but I went ahead and, and made sure Thomas <laughs> would do it. He just seems to be a guy, like he's a little on the outs, you know? So I took care of it, Jesus, I got it. We're good. Like that, but they're literally arguing out loud, who's greater? So this dispute also arose among them to which one of them was regarded as the greatest of all of them. If equality, listen, if equality for you and me is sought and it's fought for until the need arises for someone to lower themselves beneath them as equals in humiliating service, like we, we, we're willing to talk about equality, racial, and whatever issue. I don't want to minimize this message to the issues of this day. I'm by no means saying the issues of this day don't matter. They do matter. But Christ in all things, if an opportunity, you know, we're willing to seek equality and fight for equality. I'm talking about gospel equality, that everybody is somebody that God loves. I mean, he makes that very clear in scriptures. I came that all men might be saved, that all men might come back home into the family. If we are willing to say that, the church is meant to show that, demonstrate that. And the reality is, if it's something we're seeking and fighting for, the opportunity arises for us to serve and, and we have an opportunity to lower ourselves. Listen, 
humiliating service is one of the primary ways that we will demonstrate equality in this life. That somebody has value in this life. And I get that people are stinky, but you would be too if you didn't have a bathroom or a shower for a week. We're not that different from other people. We're just impressed with our recent track record that propped us up a little bit in society's perspective. It's just called self-righteousness. And Jesus loves the self-righteous. He loves to help you smell it and go, ooh, clean me up. And he does it before you ask. The passage continues. So he wrapped it around him and he came to Simon Peter, one of the disciples, and he said to him, Peter goes, hey, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? So Jesus is about to wash feet. And Peter's like, you going to wash my feet? Peter knows in this moment, like, oh, man, we were totally just arguing about who was the greatest, which obviously I am. I'm only second to Jesus. But in this case, I mean, if, if that's the bar, then I, one of us should be washing the feet, not him. I mean, it's, it's what's going on in his mind right now. And so Jesus uh, so, so he says, you're going to wash my feet. And Jesus in verse 7 says, what I'm, what I'm doing, you don't really understand right now, but afterwards you're going to understand. And there's really just a practical point right here that he's, he's making sense of. I'm sure there was fresh light on everything that Jesus did after he ascended to heaven, after his death and his resurrection, his ascension, the giving of the Holy Spirit. Everything had new light, but there was enough light in what he was about to do that was going to shine for him. And Peter said to him, well, you... <laughs> Like, I get that you're saying I don't understand, but one thing I do understand, you ain't touching my feet. <laughs> no way. Like, I know we were just arguing and you must have overheard us. You're trying to make a point, Rabbi. I get it. Like, I, I understand what you're doing, but there's no way you're touching my feet, Jesus. You, you proved your point by just, you know, derobing and putting a towel on. We get it. We should be doing this. We get it. We get it. Don't, don't put this, like the Bible in some revered, like it's all golden streets and heavenly. And when Jesus, I mean, it's, it's pra- it was practical life. These kind of thoughts were their thoughts. That's why he's like, you're not touching my feet. So Jesus answered Peter and he says, if I don't wash you, you have no share or you have no part of me. We're not, we're not together. We're not, that word share is good or another word that's equal to it is you just have no part with me. Everything we've been doing for three years, if you don't understand that I can wash your feet and I can do this with you, then you don't even understood anything. So Peter hears this one statement and Peter says to him, well, Lord, then don't just wash my feet, wash my hands. Wash my heart, wash, wash my feet, my hand, my heart, wash every... I mean, basically what he's saying, and it's very Jewish to mention three things to represent all things. He's like, hey, okay, not just my feet, my shins, my knees, my hiney, my back, my neck, my ears, all of it, wash me all, Jesus. But what he was saying, it wasn't some like, I'm so disgusting and a nasty sinner, I need to be saved in every part. Although that's, there's a truth to that for sure. I don't want you to miss when Peter's saying this, he says, oh, to have feet washed is to embody togetherness, well, then don't leave any part of me that's not related in togetherness and intimacy with you. Touch every part. Wash every part. There's two ways you can read that. You can see it as salvation. And yes, we need Christ to forgive us our sins, but that's a one-time, once-and-for-all thing. If you grew up in a tradition where you got saved every week, I promise you that's a doctrine of man that comes from the pit of hell that says you've got to do something again because the reason you thought you were saved is because you sinned that week and you thought, I must have surprised God, i got to get it right again. Jesus was crucified one time. It's a once-and-for-all sacrifice. And he anticipated all the things that would make you think you're not saved again. He did all that. Peter and Jesus are having a conversation. This is an intimacy conversation. He says, if my feet 
are symbolic of some sort of part, being part and sharing with you, would you then touch every part of me in a pure way so that I experience you at every part of my life? I don't want you to leave anything untouched in that way. So Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash. That's what I just explained, except for his feet. But it's completely clean. And Peter, buddy, you're clean, but not every one of you. For Jesus knew who was about to betray him, and that's why he said, not all of you are clean. Just, I just have two points that I'll put on the screen. They sound a little... I apologize. I, sometimes my head just gets, not in academia, but this is an early morning writing that I'm like, oh, that sounds so great, and it's so succinct and clear. And I, I mean, if it's six total lines on the screen for two points, it's not very clear. <laughs> However, it's clear, but it's just, let me just explain it. The purity of equality with one another, oh, we're equal and everybody's the same and blah, 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 is revealed when superiority is possible so you could actually find an exemption from something you do because other people are lower than you or service is required. Hey, how many of you have a degree? You don't have to take this. You don't have to be here with these people. If you have a degree, if you've done this, you've done that, you don't have to be here. I mean, you can, but it's not required. Like, no, I'm gonna, you know, I remember being in their shoes. I'm gonna help them face this. I'm, I'm gonna do that. Hey, who, who has a title of boss or who has this or this or this? And you're like, I wonder why you're asking. Oh, we just want to point you out and you don't have to be part of this. And like, so do you realize like there's this, that's what was going on for these guys. Opportunity of service came and they were praising themselves for being superior. And so there's this, the purity of our beliefs, both spiritual, heavenly and practical horizontally with one another is revealed when superior, superiority is something you can step into. You're allowed. No one would have an issue with George Washington walking up and saying, I'm the president. And they were like, oh my goodness, let's work harder. And that guy would be like, keep working harder. I've got them president, everything's good. And the president comes down and says, why aren't you helping? You're just watching them. So I'm not making an example of George Washington, like he's like Christ in that way, but in this storyline, there's a reflection of him, of Christ in that way. He didn't see superiority as something to be walked in, and he saw service as an opportunity to demonstrate what was really true, which was equality. The second thing, which to me is the most significant thing in this passage right here, is purity with Christ is proved when there's no part of your life off limits for Christ's service. Christ serving us? Well, just, I mean, let's just... God created you. He had the first word with you. He's been speaking all along. He's been making covenants. He's been making sure that you would get to a place where you could receive him and understand him. He gave you his spirit. He's been serving you all along. <laughs> so if you're like, well, he hasn't been serving me lately because I'm unemployed and my marriage is a wreck. I'm like, okay, okay. Listen, the way that you need to be served might not be fully understood by you. That's what he just said to Peter. So the reality here. That Jesus, in the face, realize this, in the face of being relationally betrayed and personal competition amongst all of his guys who were supposed to launch what we're stepping into with the church, Jesus silenced the arguments and the issues through being a servant. That's what it comes down to. And I'm curious if, if this really is true, that Peter couldn't allow Jesus to serve him by washing his feet but Peter also couldn't lower himself in comparison to others to wash anyone else's feet. You realize that? We know he wasn't willing to lower himself to wash other people's feet, but do you realize there was another issue in Peter? He would not be willing to be served by Jesus. He was just self-righteous in that moment. He was just puffed up. 
because he had to compare himself to Christ. And that's the only comparison that's worth doing, by the way. And when you compare yourself to Christ by looking at him, you're going to find somebody looking back at you, loving you, caring for you, being kind to you, and, and walking with you because he's committed himself. So that's the only healthy comparison. But it's not a comparison of like, Jesus was so this, so I should be this. It's Jesus is so this for me, and he's the final word for me, so I trust him. He's right. I'll follow him. Andrew Murray wrote a great book in history on um, humility. And, it, and this, I think he sums up this. This is a nice, pithy little statement. But pride must die in you, or nothing of heaven can live in you. And Jesus approached Peter and said, I want heaven to live inside of you, in different words. And that's why Peter's like, well, then touch every part of me. Go ahead and touch every part of me, then, if that's the case. If that's actually what's going on here, then touch every part of me. Every part. And I just want to let you know, by the way, Jesus is so budgeted and accounted for every single thing you would think, say, or do in your entire life that he has his hands in the most pure way on every part of you. The good and the bad and everything in between. He's all in with you. All in. The beauty in worship is not just saying, you're the best, you're superior, you're superior. It's also saying, how do you want to come and touch my life, Jesus? Nothing's off limits. I genuinely, if I, if I were to say there's a diagnostic of Christian people, at least in this region, that's one of our biggest issues. We're really selfish, boundary-laden lovers with God. We really are in many ways. He loves us enough to push through that. A person who's embracing Christ never has a part of their lives that's too intimate for Christ to touch. And there's also no part of our lives that's so strong that we don't need his refinement, his reform. That's just normal. That's just normal talk. I I genuinely used to think when I, my first probably seven years as a Christian, I thought the things that I'm doing well education, family, marriage, parenting, profession, all that stuff. I didn't need God's help. And I used to say, some of you, if you've been here for years, know this, I used to pray, God, you're so lucky to have me because I got this and this and this and you don't, I don't need your help. I really did. I mean, he allowed me to think that for about seven years. And then finally, like a little bit of light came out. I went, oh my word, my bad. <laughs> what? Oh my goodness. I literally thought because that looks good compared to everybody else, I didn't need any help from him. And then suddenly I realized that Jesus didn't just die for my sin. He died for all the other stuff as well because he wanted me to have a a supernatural Holy Spirit charged life that went to the lowest place all the time. That's one of the other things that Andrew Murray talked about. And this is a sloped room. If you poured water in the back of the room, it would eventually make itself all the way to the deepest, lowest place in the room. That's what Jesus did. He was like water poured out that always found the deepest crack, the deepest, lowest place. That's what a servant does. That's what Christ does. So just for reflection, thought for yourself as you go. Just one last question for you in this passage. What areas of your life are the most challenging for you to be served? And yeah, I'm not asking you, hey, where should you go serve this week? I don't, I don't want you to get charged to go do something. I'm talking about you. You can look practically with relationships. That helps me when I see that it's difficult for me for, to receive gifts and kindness and all these different things from people. I go, it's not just an us thing. There's something about here that I just don't think that I'm worthy enough or should be drawn, attention should be drawn to me. And I look at God and he goes, why? You're my child. I've given you eternity to be shared with. 
What's your issue? So I'm, I don't need to tell you about all my issues, but what I'm saying to you is if I had only one thing, if I had the motivation and influence to say, now go serve, what I would rather say is, now go and let God by his Holy Spirit serve you. And if just in case you came from like prosperity narratives or like, oh yeah, let's just, you know, it's my life plus God, that's what Chris is talking about. That is not at all what I'm talking about. I'm talking about intimacy where Peter goes, oh my goodness, if it looks like you touching my feet means to be with you, then touch every part of my life. Nothing's off limits. Don't force any of this. Read the passage, pray, talk with the Holy Spirit, and I am confident the Holy Spirit's gonna bring you to a place where you're going like, hey God, no limits. Anything and anything and anything and anything and anything and anything you wanna do. Thank you in advance that you're gonna help me be okay with it and want it and receive it. Yeah, Lord, have your way. Over this house, as you've positioned me for this day to be uh, just someone who's trying to watch over and care like a shepherd for sheep, and I'm a sheep as well. Holy Spirit, we just say yes. We take our place as the bride of Jesus Christ. Thank you for that picture and that truth. We as the bride receive your love, Jesus. There's no one better than you, Jesus. (laughs) We love you. Have your way.